Brian, I got to be honest with you here. We are doing a podcast tonight because, number one, you were out of town all last week, and now we're itching to do a podcast because there was something that was brought to my attention this week while you were gone that really bothered me and upset me. Talk about it. Whenever we um, got the link to watch this video that uh, someone shared with us, the link was uh, from a book. We're not going to mention any names. We're not going to do anything like that. But there was a book that was written and published that talks about the Pentecostal experience being fake and that Pentecostal people use their um, religion as a weapon and apostolics use their religion as a weapon. And it bothered me to the core to where I called you and talked to you about it. And I even talked to the producer of that show. And uh, we're here to talk about it. Yeah. And so here's, you know, we're not going to go through and, and break down the points of the video uh, that, that's out there. Here, here's what we're going to do is we're just going to simply affirm the experience of Pentecostalism. Yeah. We, we want to talk about, you know, what the Bible has to say about salvation. Uh, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter number two, verse number three, it says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The, the, the salvation experience is a, and a great experience. It's something that everyone needs to experience. It, it is the essential of all essentials is how can a person be saved? And so the question is, uh, whenever you begin to talk about in terms of salvation, there is several things that have to be understood uh, to get there. You have to know what you're saved from. Sin, hell. You have to know who saves you from that sin and hell. We have to know the God that the sin was committed against because otherwise the sin doesn't make sense of, of, of even what sin is. Uh, one thing that, that Jesus is asked in, in the New Testament, I don't have the scripture in front of me, but I will at least paraphrase if not directly quote it to you. Jesus is asked by, by an individual, what is the first commandment? And Tony, what was it that Jesus said was the first commandment? Well, you can find that in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Yes, he quotes from, in the New Testament, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and 4. It's interesting that he says the first commandment because the first commandment was in Genesis. The first commandment we have record of is uh, let there, let be, there light. be light. And so that was the first commandment. So what Jesus means is not first in order, but he's talking about the first of importance. The most important thing is to know that hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. Everything that we believe as Christians has to be based in our understanding of God and who God is. That is absolutely fundamental because, and here's the reason why, is when it comes to deep things of salvation, when it comes to the judgment of God, we have to understand that God is just. Otherwise, we cannot trust his judgment. So we have to somehow, in, in study of the scriptures, 
come to a knowledge and understanding of who the God that we're serving is, who the God that is going to be actively saving us is. Now, here's a question. Now, we're going to get into some deep stuff. And then as we get into the deep stuff, we're going to kind of take the roller coaster ride from the deep back to some higher uh, higher ground and things like that. So hopefully nobody gets stranded. And, and Tony, help me make sure that I'm not staying down in the deep water so long anybody gets drowned. Right. So here's, here's a concept that is asked sometimes is who is the hero of our salvation? We would say, well, God is. And they would ask, well, how are you saved? And you're like, well, I repented of my sins. And they would say, oh, you repented of your sins. So does that not make you the hero of your salvation? Did you not save yourself? Well, that's an interesting question. If you're in a... If you were drowning at the at the bottom of the ocean and somebody were to let a chain down into the water and lift you out, would you take pride in the fact that you grabbed a hold of the chain that you were the one who saved yourself? No. You would be thankful to the one who let the chain down to you. Salvation is an opportunity for us all to grab a hold of. But there are ideas that are out there that say that you have no active role in your salvation. There is the idea of predetermination, that God already predetermines our salvation for us. There, there's this concept, Tony, it's called the, the tulip. There was an individual we talked to on the phone not too long ago, and that individual uh, made a mention of how they were a five-point Calvinist. And after we got off the phone, you asked, well, what is that? And I wasn't very sure myself. I'd, I'd heard of it very briefly. Five-point Calvinism is a, a teaching that teaches five essential points. And again, notice I said TULIP because each of the points in the acronym of TULIP stands for something. There is the T, which means the total depravity. U means unconditional election. L means limited atonement. I means um, irresistible grace. And P means the preservation of the soul. So here's what this means, Tony. When we talk about total depravity, they would say you cannot even repent of your sins. Yeah. They would say that because you're, you are such a slave to your own sins, that you don't have the ability to even seek forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That God has to, based on the unconditional election... God just chooses you, Tony, to to repent of your own sins. That he gives you an irresistible grace that allows you to be saved, which means there are other people that aren't chosen in that way. Yeah. Well, I have a friend of mine who sent me something to study on, and I'm so glad he did. There's five key points that I wanted to share on this podcast with people because you never know what people are struggling with or dealing with whenever it comes to uh, being saved or plan of salvation. These five key points, I want everybody to tune in and listen real quick. Number one is that the grace of God is always looking for someone to save. Mm-hmm. Number two, without God's influence, man will always corrupt his ways. Number three, God is a house-cleaning God. You're not going to stay the same. He's going to come in. He's going to take care of business. Number four, God always provides a way of escape. That's your plan of salvation. Mm-hmm. And number five, this is the first example of water eliminating sin. 
in, in, baptism. in baptism. Mm-hmm. So don't just think that just because of how you are or if you've had bad experiences in churches before that God is, doesn't have a, um, a hope for you. A, a way out of a better life. And we've talked about it on the podcast time and time again that there's a there's a stupid statement out there, Brian, that is, um, I'm going to be a Christian because I've got to get an easier lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Is that funny to you? No. That's crazy to me. You know, but God is there to plan that escape for us in that hard hardship of life, and that is the plan of salvation. Yeah. And so with that, it's an opportunity that's given to you. It's not something that's predetermined that God is just, he just randomly picked you to, right. to accept that. And other people he did not do that with. What you always see in the Bible is people getting those opportunities that Tony was made mention of, is that salvation is something, it's not as what the Calvinists would teach that God he just randomly selects based on no no works at all. One of the, one of the craziest points in that is that L point, which means the limited atonement, because the scriptures clearly teach, like in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever. It, it's a question of everybody. It's not a limited atonement. That's only for the few people that God randomly God's few and no more yeah no it's an option for every single person you have a choice because here's the thing if if we believe that that we have no control at all on whether or not we would go to heaven or hell that that just can't be a possibility when you study the whole testament of scripture yeah because the character of god as revealed throughout all the bible is whosoever will let him come into me and drink it's an option every person has i'm glad you said the word option brian because in you know acts 238 every pentecostal lives by it but if you don't know it let let us share it with you Brian, go ahead and quote it with me. And then Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I'm glad. You know what? That's a gift. Mm-hmm. The Holy Ghost is a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift. It's not something you have to obtain. It's not something we deserve. You know, Brian, we, at Christmas time, we get the best, greatest gifts from our parents. And we go home and our wives give us a gift. And then we go to Grandmama's house and she gives us a gift. You know what? We don't deserve those things. But it's because they love us. Mm-hmm. The folks that love us, they give us these things that we call gifts. And you know what? That's what Jesus Christ did for us. He gave us a gift that it's our choice to receive that gift it's something that's obtainable it's something that you can reach out and grab and it's something that is is something that you you live and breathe and die it is the holy ghost that has been given to you and it is for every believer absolutely every every person out there if if that is willing to put their faith in christ that grace is given brian i want to share a uh, a story with our listeners here and um the person who is going to hear this, forgive me for not getting your permission before I read this, um, but um, I'm going to share it anyway and uh, ask for um, forgiveness later. But um, I had a listener text me today. Um, they're from 
Tennessee Brian, and I haven't shared this with you yet, but they listened to one of our episodes and it really stirred their soul. They are not of our faith, Brian. They are um, uh, someone who has just stumbled upon our podcast, but they got in touch with us and we've been in close contact with them. But it says, my husband was not raised to believe in the Holy Spirit. This year has been so hard for our relationship until June. And a lady prayed with me, and we covered my marriage in the blood, and I gave it to God. And my husband's attitude over certain things has changed dramatically. It's gotten so much better. And then he struggled with the feeling of panic and illness. He's been a healthy guy his whole life, but he's been fearful of a heart attack and prostate cancer and gastric cancer, and he's truly fearful, but I have partly accused him of being a hypochondriac and just jumping to the worst because of former situations. But it has truly opened my eyes that while he is overall skeptical of these spirits that is truly an attack, I know how to rebuke it. He's had stress tests and eco labs and prostate exams and everything is good. I know this is a spiritual battle because I have been praying fervently over strength in our relationship and that God will give him a calling and a passion and reveal the spirit to him and melt him. I know this is an attempt to disrupt that. Brian, you never know what people will get out of these podcast episodes. Mm-hmm. So that's why it was burdened to us to start this podcast, to debunk the statement that the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost, that whole experience is fake. Yeah. Uh, well, since you bring that up, because I was kind of going another direction, and I can route back to it. But I want to give some scriptural proofs that the gift of the Holy Spirit is still available today. Because as Tony, you well know, and we've, we've talked about it briefly on the podcast, we really haven't gone deep into it, is I've had some informal debates with people of other church denominations that would teach that the the Holy Spirit is not for everybody. Uh, so one place that I want to go to is I, I want to go to the book of First of Corinthians chapter number one, and and I want to read one verse to you in verse number seven, because what the teach the what is commonly taught is uh, actually it would be better uh, to go ahead and jump uh, further in Corinthians. Uh, to give the exact uh, place where they think spiritual giftings stop. Uh, so spiritual giftings, when we, what do we talk about when we mean spiritual giftings? There's, there's multiple, you know, there's um, gifts of healing, there's miracles, there's signs, and there's wonders. Yes. Um, you know, that we still operate in today. Yeah. All forms of, of supernatural, yeah. the miraculous. God's speaking through me audibly. Yes. And so... What there are people that teach is that all of this was done away with with the completion of the New Testament. And here's where they would say that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which they would clearly say, yes, the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter number 2. But it's not available still today. You cannot be infilled with the Holy Spirit like they were in the book of Acts. And where they're going to go to is they're going to go to First uh, Corinthians chapter number 13. And in chapter number 13, in verse number 10, it says, But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part is being done away with. So what is the part that is being done away with? We have to jump, uh, we have to go backwards. And so beginning in verse number 8, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, the supernatural speaking, uh, whether there be any prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be any tongues, 
And what they're speaking of as tongues is the gift of tongues that is given like in Acts chapter number two, whenever the Holy Spirit comes in the room, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them the utterance. These tongues, it says, they shall cease and whether there be any knowledge, it will vanish away. And so they're talking about supernatural knowledge as a, a gift that all these things will eventually be done away with. And so they go to verse number 10 and they say, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. And so they would say the one thing that is that perfect is the completion of the New Testament because the purpose of prophecy and of knowledge and of gift of tongues is to bring a Christian to full maturity. Well, they say that those are no longer needed to come to full maturity because all you have to have now is a study of the New Testament. Because if you study the New Testament enough, then that will grow you into being a fully mature and operating Christian. And so here's what is interesting is they go to Corinthians chapter number 13, verse number 10, and say that which is perfect is come, which means there was a point in time back in the first century when the New Testament was completed uh, that, that all the miraculous signs ended. Or they would say that whenever the last apostle died, that's when the last of the miracles happened because the New Testament wasn't fully assembled for another couple of hundred years, but it was all written at the time. But what's interesting is you're using Paul to try and disprove spiritual gifts, but whenever you actually go to the beginning of the book and you begin in verse number seven of the first chapter, it says Paul is writing the Corinthians, commending them and teaching them in the supernatural gifts in verses chapters number 12, 13, and 14. And what Paul says in verse number 7 is that his prayer is that you come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul sets the timeline. Paul says the timeline is that to the church of Corinth, I don't want you to come behind in any supernatural gifts until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't until the Lord Jesus Christ shows up that spiritual these spiritual giftings will cease mm-hmm. because we still are in an imperfect world. These purposes of these gifts are to mature us and to grow us for the Spirit of God to come into our life and bring a newness of life within us. And so, no, the supernatural will be in place until Jesus Christ comes and brings into life into our reality, that which is perfect, which is the kingdom of our God. That is where perfection is made. Now, remember, we talked about how, um, or as you study in 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, it talks about how right now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but then we shall see face to face. And what's interesting is when we talk about seeing face-to-face, what, what does that even mean when we would see face-to-face, whenever we would gain the, this perfect knowledge and this understanding of face-to-face? When you go to the end of the book of Revelation, whenever Jesus has returned and he has established his kingdom, they're, they're in the very last book of uh, the very last chapter of the book of Revelation, whenever you read verse number three, and it says, and there shall be no more curse, and the throne of God and his Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. And remember the face-to-face meeting, verse number four of Revelation 22. And they shall see his face. The face-to-face meeting does not happen until Jesus comes back and has his kingdom established. 
That is when that which is perfect has come. Because right now, we don't see Jesus face to face. We see through a glass darkly. There, there are things of spiritual understanding that even with spiritual gifts, we don't yet obtain and don't yet see and we don't yet know. But when Jesus returns for his church that has made itself ready, again, go back to what I was saying before about how it's our option that has made itself ready for him. That is when the spiritual gifts cease because there's no longer a need for it because we have entered into the perfection of the kingdom of heaven. And so like with, with these, this and many different, uh, there, the many and different arguments we could go through and begin to talk about, but it is a consistent teaching of the Bible is that the miraculous can still happen today. And, and there are people that will question, well, where are all these, these miracles like we see in the New Testament of, of the dead being raised and people getting out of wheelchairs and things like that? The thing is, is that has to be a supernatural event. If something happens every single day, it's no longer supernatural. It's just natural. And so by the, to be the, an actual definition of a miracle, it has to be something that's impossible. And in a way, it has to be something that isn't just happening all, all the time and in every case whenever it comes to these supernatural healings. But there is one exception because there is one miraculous thing that God does in our lives that isn't essential to enter into the kingdom of heaven because you can enter into the kingdom of heaven maimed. Jesus even teaches that if your hand should be offensive to you to cut it off because it's better entered into the kingdom of heaven maimed than to go into it whole. Yeah. Our, our physical health does not have to be perfect, but our spiritual health does have to be perfect. And the ones and one miracle that is available in every case to every person is the supernatural miracle of the infilling of the Holy Spirit because that is the will of God on every occasion. It's the one miraculous thing that Jesus says to come unto me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give him to drink of the rivers of living water. And the Bible says when Jesus made reference to that, it says in the parenthetical statement, this spake he of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the one miraculous thing that in every case, if you come to him asking and you receive by the positive experience of faith, his grace into our life, you can receive the supernatural gift of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And it is for whosoever will. So let me ask you something, Brian. Okay. If, if I have a hard time with my carnality of... Um, thinking that this isn't real or I can't obtain it because uh, I'm a thinker. You know, I've heard that a lot of times that, you know, I don't understand. I understand what you're doing, but I don't understand the concept of the Holy Ghost. Um, I don't think that something's just going to flow through my body and I'll be uncontrollable. Um, for me, as in, for instance, sometimes I have a hard time uh, with the concept of flying because I'm not in control of it. I don't have the control of my outcome and my destiny if the plane were to crash. What do you tell the person that says, I can't get the Holy Ghost because I, I think about it too much. It's, it's something that I'm, I'm not controlling. I have control over every aspect of my life. What do you say to somebody like that? Well, in the beginning of of the statement there, I can't receive the Holy Ghost, we would have to affirm the truth that, yes, you can. 
Because it's given to you. What what is the holdup there is there is a resistance because we are unwilling to relinquish control. And I think there's many things in life that are like that. I, I heard a poem one time that was read by Sister Nona Freeman when she talked. It's a poem about broken dreams. And, and paraphrasing the dream, what it talks about is there was this child who brought their broken dreams to God. And, and in the poem, it talks about how I had tried to 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 for myself to mend these broken dreams with ways that were on my own. And so we they brought the dreams in, in the poem to God. And God begins to work on the dream and begins to the work on the, the remending process. But the individual that brought the dream before God begins to get impatient. And what happens at the crux of the poem is it snatches the dream away from God because they ask him, God, how could you work so slow? And God says, my child, my child, what more could I do? Because you never would let go. And so the thing is, is we bring before God ourselves. We bring before God our spirit. And, and when we have this, this grasp on ourselves, then yes, we have closed ourselves from the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about the tongue and how the tongue is the most unruly member of the body. And there's a question that as you begin to read through the accounts of the book of Acts, when you see people that are infilled with the Holy Spirit, that, that they begin to speak in supernatural tongues, which means they speak in a language that they've they've never learned, that, that God just kind of takes control. And there's question of why is it that God uses the sign of tongues, like in Acts chapter number 2 and Acts chapter number 8, Acts chapter number uh, uh uh, well, it's not explicitly mentioned in Acts chapter number 8. It is implied in Acts 8. It's explicitly mentioned in Acts 10 and Acts 19, and then again in the epistles. And so the, the question is, why is it that God is using that supernatural action? And I think one of the causes is because a symbol of truly releasing, of true surrender. You know people talk about why is it that people that... that uh, charismatic people, they lift their hands so much in church. It's because it is an act of surrender unto God. And when we fully surrender our spirit, when we fully surrender all of who we are, our future, our past, our present, everything that makes us who we are, when we fully submit that and we surrender that unto God, that most uncontrollable part of us, the tongue that can lash out at somebody in wrath, that can that can suddenly speak something, the tongue that when you look at it through history, the speeches of people like Adolf Hitler that destroyed communities and destroyed people because of the power of, of a tongue, that, that uncontrolly small member of our body, that three-inch tongue that can break down a six-foot man, that tongue that can destroy people, God takes that and he uses that as a, super, a way of showing that he has taken full control. And so to answer your question, what do you say to the person who says, I can't receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, that, that I just can't get that release? Again, yes, you can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It is available to you. But you have got to get to the place of full repentance. And, and so what is repentance? Repentance is the complete turning away from the direction you've been going yeah. and, and who you are. When you've come to, because the only prerequisite to being infilled with the gift of the Holy Spirit is true repentance. When you have truly repented and you have truly released all of who you are, again, that past, present, and future unto God, it is then he will infill you with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so there's many cases out there 
where we've seen people, they, they, what we call tarry for the Holy Ghost, which means they wait around for it. And, and there, it is not the will of God that you wait around for years without receiving the gift. It is a gift for whosoever will. And so why is it that some people don't receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? It's because somewhere there is either a lack of understanding, which causes a lack of faith, or as you said, Tony, there is a lack of surrender. Mm-hmm. What is your, your thoughts on it? Well, I'm going to read one of my favorite verses, Brian. And every, just about everybody, I think, qu- could quote this scripture. It's Romans 12.1. I'm sure you know it, Brian. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let's break that down into another um, version. It says, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. For me, Brian, it's very simple. I don't deserve God's mercy. I don't deserve God's grace. I I was talking to somebody today about how um, it was back whenever I was really struggling that I lost a battle with my mind and I went out and did some crazy things. And little did I know that God never left me, Brian. Never. That's that's a that's a, that is a statement that that needs to officially be buried. God doesn't leave us, and I thought He had, and I I, I felt like I was drawing farther and farther away from God. But you know what? It was me doing the walking, not them. And whenever you are full of what we're talking about, Brian. It seems it's a lot easier to put your faith and your trust in God. Um, there was one thing that was mentioned on that um, show while we're doing this episode tonight, Brian, was um, Christians aren't supposed to have questions if they do, they're found to be weak. I think that is the stupidest thing someone could say. Questions build my faith. Brian, how about you? No, there, there's a quote from uh, the third president, Thomas Jefferson, and he it says something, uh, again, I'm paraphrasing, where he says that if there is a God, because as you know about, uh, if you've studied Thomas Jefferson, you know that he, he was a deist. He didn't necessarily believe that God played an active role in people's lives. But he said, if there is a God, surely he would rather honest questioning than than blind faith. Yeah. Of believing just because it said so. He would rather people be curious as to, well, why is it that I say I believe X, Y, Z? Is there a reason why God would want us to believe certain things? And so I think that it's more of a virtue of, of Christianity, of being able to honor. Here's an example. So when we look at Judaism, uh, the, the nation of the Hebrews is the nation of Israel. What does the name Israel mean? Well, it's given to us in the book of Genesis. Jacob is uh, about to go and, and face his brother that he has wronged. And Jacob wrestles with an angel of the Lord. And in that wrestling, the angel declares Jacob is given a new name. And the, the name Jacob is changed to Israel. Israel means to wrestle with God. And I think that there's this concept in Judaism that may not be talked about as much in Christianity, but I think it's a a powerful principle uh, because obviously the Christian church is born out of Israel. 
is this concept that we wrestle with God. And, and what we mean by that is that we question things that we're curious about. There, there are certain subjects that you have to wrestle with. Like when we come to questions about pain and suffering, well, why does God, if he's supposed to be good, God, why do you allow people to suffer? Why do you allow people to go through hurts? And these are concepts we wrestle with God over. Not in the in the, that we're disrespecting God in any way, not that, that we're denying that God is good in any way, but we're wondering, well, why is it? What is it about your character I don't quite understand? And that concept of God, we wrestle with actively because, I mean, we would be dishonest as, you know, as a church listening to all of our, all, if we were to take a poll of all of our listeners out there, I would be interested, Tony, in to say in the year 2019, have you wrestled with, is there really even a God? Yeah. Because all through our lives, there are times where we believe 100% God is with me, God is good, God is great. But there are those dark times when it's the question of, God, can you even hear me? Are you there? And and and, and so even, even now with, with me being in ministry, there are times I wonder, well, well what if? What if? Because... That's something that we do. Again, it's not born out of disrespect. It's not even born in a way out of unfaithfulness. But it's this concept that that God is a God is in the whole totality of who He is is so far and above us as carnal people, as carnal men and women. That that that's a concept that we we struggle with sometimes because we're trying to gain understanding and understand. Is there clarity behind what I currently don't understand about God? And, and, and so when we, we begin to wrestle with these things and we go through these different concepts and we begin to wrestle through, well, what does the Bible really say about salvation? That through the wrestling that there is with Jacob, he, his side is touched and he, he goes through a limp. Uh, through the rest of his life. And, and why is it that God chooses to cause Jacob to limp? Is so that way he wouldn't lean to his own understanding. But there, through all of the wrestling, when, when, when it all boils down to it, there are, there are some things that we just have to limp through, that we lean not into our own understanding, but we have to trust God through these things. Uh, so getting back uh, kind of on track of, of where we first started out with, when we talk about the ideas of of predetermination and free will, because that is something that is is hotly kind of contested within the Christian church. It is do Christians really even have the the ability to choose whether or not they are saved? Again, I believe it is the the testament of Scripture that you are given the opportunity. When, when in science, there's a a, a a philosophy out there about determinism, and and they would say that you think you have free will. You think you have free will, but really you you are predetermined. The reason why if I ask you what is 2 plus 2, you will instinctively answer 4 is because your culture has taught you the 4. It was predetermined in you because your mater- the materials that make you who you are and the culture around you predetermine every action. You think that you have chose to work at FedEx, Tony, but you didn't. Culture made it in such a way that you had to find a job. Somewhere in you was put by culture something in your the chemical makeup of your brain 
that made you apply for that job. That's what the materialists and scientists, that's a, that's a concept they're wrestling with currently. And, and, and some of the, the very prominent atheists out there today, such as Sam Harris, this is the things that he would teach is your, your, the material that makes you a man and the society that you live in predetermines every action. You only have the illusion of choosing. But here's the thing. When you look at like a puppeteer, um, Jordan Peterson, I was watching a few of his videos recently and he talked about Pinocchio and how Pinocchio, the person who, who built the puppet for Pinocchio in the story is the perfect archetype of a good father. And so we've got Pinocchio on the strings. He's manipulated as a puppet. And they would say that that is kind of how it's predetermined in a sense that, that when it comes to predetermination in the spirit realm. But here's the thing. You have culture and you have materialism, but it is the voice of God. It is the voice of the Spirit that says, but there's also you, that you are real. And so the, the idea is if it is true in science, materialism and culture determine everything in your life, they are forgetting the most important thing is that we as humans aren't like the animals. If that if culture and and chemistry makeup predetermine the action of animals, that doesn't mean humans are bound by the same type of materialism because humans have within them the spark of God, that God has put within them a life, has put within them a soul of consciousness, that consciousness that, that, that science can't answer even what consciousness even is, but God has put that within you as a person. And so you actually have a life. And, and they would say in science, everything that you see is based as a result of cause and effect. When you, you study through science, the reason why this, the sun got up uh, or the, the, the sun arose is an effect of the rotation of the earth. The, the sun is still in place. But because the earth rotates, that's the cause. The effect is you see the sunrise. But the thing is, is in the material world, there may be the law of cause and effect. But the material world means nothing to do with the, the laws of the spirit. And we are not, as, as we heard in a previous podcast that recently released with brother uh, Pastor uh, Phil Flowers, we are not just human beings, fleshly beings, but we are spirit beings. And so the, the laws of science have no effect on who, the, the immaterial of the spirit of humanity. And so, yes, we truly do have this concept of free will. Our spirit fights against the flesh. There are things that our flesh is creature, the, the creature nature within us as humans, the, the desires uh, of, of lust. Because, I mean, you look at the animal kingdom, if an animal wants to have sex, it's just going to do it. Because that's, that's the creature nature within it. It's trying to procreate. And we are above that. Why? Not just not because we are the highest of evolutionary achievement, but because God has put within us this consciousness, this soul that is within us that tells us there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And whenever culture presents us these options, and, and more specifically, when God truly gives us the option, do you give in to the fleshly nature or do you listen to the Spirit? That is an honest option. God calls to Moses at one point in, in the Old Testament, in, in the Torah, 
which is the first five books of Moses. There's a day where God calls creation to witness with Moses and says, I set before you today life and death. Choose life. God gives Moses the option. You can choose life or you can choose death. God's recommendation to you, Tony, when God gives you that same option, and by extension, our listeners and myself, every day he gives us the chance. I set before you this day both life and death. Choose, therefore, life. But every day when we get up, we've got to make the decision, which are we going to choose? Are we going to choose life? the things that are beneficial to the spirit, things that are that connect us with God, that, that, that connect our spirit with him, or for the person out there that hasn't had a born-again experience, this day are you going to choose to repent? Is it this day you're going to choose no longer the death of, of sin because sin is separation with God. It is spiritual death. I no longer choose death, but today I choose therefore life. That's when you come to God in repentance. And so the first step in salvation, Tony, is repentance. Tony, again, I know we've talked about it already, but I want to bring you in. Talk to our listeners again about that importance of first repenting. Well, for me, it's, I, first of all, I never did really fall in love with uh, our doctrine until I started studying it for myself until I started understanding it for myself. You know, you can be taught something and listen to something for, you know, forever and just agree with it because that's all you know. Can I tell a real quick story real quick? Just (laughs) because you you talked about that. You want to know how I got to where I actually really started studying the scriptures? I had an uncle one time that he brought up something about a doctrine that he believed that I knew wasn't of God. Uh, wasn't it found in the scriptures? And I went to have a discussion with him. And so I was kind of arrogant with it because I'd been through a couple of Bible studies on Monday night. And I set my Bible down to talk. And the first question he asked, I had no answer for. Mm-hmm. And and when he and it got to the point in our debate that the only thing I could say was, I actually quoted something I heard Lee Stone King say before. I said, you know about Jesus, but I actually know him. But when I look back now, the truth is, you didn't know him. I didn't know him then either. Yeah. I had to, because the only way to get to know him was through this book. But anyway, as you were saying. Well, repentance for me came at a much later time than when I did receive the Holy Ghost. Because I had a better understanding of what repentance was. Repentance, a lot of people think, is asking God for forgiveness. And yeah, that is a big, massive part of it. But it's not. you don't truly repent until you decide this is it. I'm done with it. I can't live like this. It's over. Um, that didn't come to me, Brian, until 16 years old. And that's sad to say because I was born and raised in this. And, um, yeah, I got the Holy Ghost when I was seven. But I didn't develop a relationship till much later in life. You know, I thought, yeah, I got the Holy Ghost. I'm going to heaven now. But it's much deeper than that. you got to build that relationship with God. And it's not until you decide... On, on repentance, Brian, what you asked me was um, to talk about that is it's not until you are done and you know you're not going back and you choose to move forward from here on out. Um, that's that's true repentance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so true repentance is only available because Christ died for your sins. And I'll say this as well when it comes to repentance. Um 
What do you think it means when Paul says, I die daily? Why don't you tell me? My theory on, well, it's not a theory. My studies on that is that we need to kill the inner man daily. We need to make this forgiveness and repentance a daily thing with God. We need to have a commune with God daily, Brian. We don't need to let, and God knows I'm just as guilty as the next person now not doing that, but we need to have a relationship with God to where you kind of joked about it earlier with someone on the phone. We are on first-name basis with one another, God and I, because yeah. he knows my voice. He knows who I am, and I need to be like Paul and die daily. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I fully agree that I think that Paul is referring to that, that a little bit of his of his flesh dies off every day yes. as he draws closer. And repentance is when you look at the, the example that Jesus gave, it is an example in the cross that that we are we die to our sinful nature, that we die to sin that we may live unto God. Uh, remember early on I, I asked about what the first commandment was. Mm-hmm. And I said that all doctrine has to be, I think I said it or I was meaning to imply it, all of our doctrine is based around the idea of the oneness of God. Everything is based around who God actually is. And so when it comes to end times, everything has to be based around that. And so the doctrine of salvation is not any different, that we have to truly know who God is. And so when we're first introduced to God in Genesis chapter number one, we really don't have a whole lot of understanding about him. It isn't until we begin to study deeper into the scriptures, we begin to gain more revelations about how uh, when God is revealed unto Abraham through the priest Melchizedek, that he is the most high God, which means he is above all other gods. Later on, we begin to see more about the single nature, what, what I call, again, the oneness of God, how, how God all throughout the Old Testament is revealed as being the Holy One of Israel, the, the, the solitary one person of God. Uh, when we come into the New Testament, though, there are questions about who Jesus is in relation to God. Well, Jesus, uh, when, when he, he is vir- virgin-born, of course, and and what it says, what Paul teaches in First Timothy chapter number three, verse number sixteen, is that God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus was the incarnation of the one God of the Old Testament, came who has come into human form, has, who has literally became a man and has died on a cross. There's a, there's a question sometime that talks about the question of, of, uh, of, God, of Jesus in relation to the Father and, and what that all means. Like there's this scripture that's in, in John 17, verse number five. It says, O Father, glorify thou me with thy own self, with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. And the reason why a lot of people contest on this scripture is it speaks of, of Jesus as he prays to the Father, and he says to glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. And so they, they take the scripture to indicate that Jesus preexisted the birth in the manger in Bethlehem. Does that what is that what that scripture means? Because this is important because all doctrine has to be based around how we understand God. I think the key word to understanding that passage is the word glory. Because Jesus is asking, is praying to the Father 
for this glory. Well, we have to define what the glory is. And so some would say, well, the glory there indicates the, how he was in the, how he preexisted with God as a second person of God. But that's not what that means because whatever that word glory means, it has to mean the same thing in verse number 22 because in verse number 22 it says, The glory which thou hast given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. He's, whatever the glory is, it's given to the apostles. So what is the glory that Jesus is in reference to? It can't be God nature, Godhood, because it was given to the apostles because the, the apostles are not persons of God. To gain the understanding of what Jesus is in reference to in verse number 5, and by the way, just as a side note, in Hebrews it teaches that Jesus only prayed in the days of his flesh. This scripture is giving a clear revelation that Jesus literally was actually was a man in every sense of what it means to be a man. Just as you, Tony, and myself are men, we have to pray to God. Jesus had to be able to do the same thing because he truly became human. And so Jesus is praying from the humanity, what is the glory he is in reference to? In verse number, in chapter number 12 of John, there, John chapter number 17 and John chapter number 12 are companion scriptures that begin to talk about these things of the glory. And in verse number, um, I believe it's in John uh, 12 verse number 33 that it says here, this said he signifying the death that he should die. When you read the context of John chapter number 12, 23 to 33, what you're seeing is it's a companion scripture of Jesus is make, is talking about the same things in chapter 12 as he does in chapter number 17. And the glory he speaks of in John chapter number 12 is speaking of the death that he should die. So what is the glory that Jesus was praying for? It was the glory of the cross. So in what way did the cross pre-exist? Because he said, before the foundation of the world, glorify me with that glory. When you read John chapter number 1, it talks about how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word, Word, in, in Greek is the logos, which means the thought, reason, and the expression of voice of God. So what was that, that plan, that reason, the mind of God from the beginning? Well, in, in, in I believe it's First Peter, it talks about how Jesus was slain from the foundation of the worlds. And there's other scriptures in the New Testament that talks about how uh, it's actually in First in Peter chapter number 1, verses number 19 through 20. I'll paraphrase it. It says, But which precious blood of Christ as of the Lamb he was slain before the foundation of the world. In Revelations 13 and 8, it says, The Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world, from the very beginning of creation, in the Logos, the plan of God, was always the cross. And so what happens is as my thoughts exist within my mind and are expressed whenever I speak, they are my thoughts. They belong to me. They are as much a part of me as anything. When God has this concept from the beginning that he will have the cross, that the, cro that he, that the cross of Jesus Christ will be enacted, that word is expressed in the incarnation. When Jesus comes and he dies on the cross. So how was the glory given to the apostles? 
because the apostles are taught about the are are prefigured in, in prophetic ways, Jesus is teaching them of the death that he should die. And he's giving this to them because they are to preach the glory of the cross. That is what is given to them. It is the message that Jesus came from heaven, became a man, and died on Calvary's hill so that way we could all be saved. And so the message of salvation can only be understood truly in the power of what it is when we understand who Jesus really was, is he was the God of all time that became a human and died for you and me. He shed his own blood. It talks about how we are purchased by the precious blood of Christ. In Acts, it talks about how God has purchased us with his own blood. How has God purchased us? God is a spirit. Spirits don't have blood because the spirit of God became man and died for us. This is, to me, one of my greatest passions is the communication of the truth of who God truly is. Because the oneness of God affects every doctrinal point of which we believe. And so here is the question, going back into repentance. So God himself becomes a man and the humanity dies on the cross, so that way repentance is available. Again, it all comes down now to this. What are you going to do with this information? Are you going to allow, if you have never repented of sin, are you going to allow the death of Christ to just be in vain? No, I would submit to you that we should appreciate what Christ has done with us. This is the gospel message. The message of the gospel is that Christ has died for us according to the scriptures, as it was prophesied through the Old Testament, that, that God would come to huma into humanity and that he would die upon the cross so that way you and I can be saved. If Jesus had never gone to the cross, salvation would not be made possible, but he did. And so again, this is something that is available to you if you come before the cross of Jesus Christ, if you humble yourself before that cross. People talk about how we, we are all made equal at the foot of the cross. It is at the cross of Jesus Christ that we must humble ourselves and approach God. And this is where we come to him and we say, Jesus, I'm asking you to help me. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. I'm asking you as the God of heaven who controls all things to justify my spirit, to change me, to cleanse me, and to wash me. So Tony, talk to me. Tell me about that, that first time that you repented. Now, you obviously you repented as a young person. Otherwise, you could not have received the Holy Ghost. But I'm interested in what you said about how you really truly didn't repent until later on. And so you it's not either, that I didn't repent until later on. It's that I didn't understand what repentance was until later on. Explain to me what it was like when you finally really let go. Honestly, it was it was scary because you have this misconception that I can no longer mess up because I vowed to God that I'm not going to live like that anymore. And that goes back to what I said earlier. We must die daily because we do make mistakes. We do struggle with life. And You mean um, you came before God and you weren't just made perfect? That's right. That's right. And if we could ever realize that it's okay to make mistakes and 
still have a relationship with God that Brian, I'm the only person in my family. When I say the only person in my family, I'm talking about my grandparents is grandkids that hasn't had a divorce. And I remember whenever um, I got married, my grandma came to me and said, I want you to break the curse. I want you to make sure that you put God first in your marriage. And um, I want you to make sure that you make this work. And it's crazy because if we live that way with our relationship with God, could you imagine how much better of a place that we would be that we would live in? If we all decided to put God in the center of our life, that yes, my wife and I, we've we've had our struggles, but we're still married. We're still in love. We still work through the pains and we still work through the struggles. And if we would do take that exact same approach in our walk with God, we could understand that it's a lot deeper than a surface level relationship. It's it's a relationship, not a friendship. Absolutely. Let me ask you about a big word here. Conviction. Mm. Have you ever felt conviction? Yeah, absolutely. What is conviction to you? Conviction to me is, um, you know, you said it a long time ago, Brian. I really, really like when a preacher steps on my toes until he starts stepping on my toes. And you want him to step on everybody else's toes. That's right. You know. That's right. Doesn't he know that these shoes are new and I don't want them to get scuffed? But what we what we mean by when we say that is I want the preacher to speak to me unless it's talking about something I'm struggling with, but I enjoy that struggle, Brian. Yeah. I enjoy that sin. I enjoy that pain. And I want him to tell me, oh, it's okay. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Instead, he's somebody looking out for my soul. And I can tell you the first time I got convicted, (laughs) uh, I was uh, so embarrassed, but some of our listeners can relate. Did you ever have a Walkman? A Walkman? Yeah. No. So a Walkman to our people that's like Brian was a CD player that clipped on your belt and you had headphones, over-the-ear headphones, and that was the cool thing. But you couldn't run because that thing would skip. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. But uh, the the most time I ever got convicted was whenever that Walkman turned into an MP3 player. I got to put all of my CDs on that MP3 player, and I had, I think, like 150 songs. And uh, I got into an argument with this girl at my school one time about um, why we believe what we believe and why our girls wear skirts and uh, why they don't cut their hair. And, um, you know, I said, well, let me ask you something, so-and-so. Could somebody tell you are a Christian if they looked at you? And she turned around without missing a beat and said, could they tell you are a Christian by looking through your iPod? That convicted me. Yeah. And so conviction leads you to a place where you've got to make a change, right? Absolutely. Because if you don't make that change, that'll just keep eating at you. And life ain't worth living like that. No. Um, I, I, I remember I remember going home and putting my... Uh, man, I'm telling how old I am here. But I remember <laughs> going home and plugging my iPod. It wasn't an iPod. I keep saying that. It was a like a juke or something like that. 
I hooked it up to my computer, and uh, I took off all of that music. And I had like maybe three or four songs. That was the only Christian songs I had on there. But uh, it just kept eating at me and eating at me and eating at me. And then it was at that point where I felt like at school I had to go back and show, hey, I am a Christian. Look, look, look at this, look at that. And you can say all you want about who you are, Brian, but until that light starts shining. Yeah. Has to. And and I think that a lot of people, they get nervous about conviction. And they'll even boast about how, well, that doesn't convict me. That doesn't mean that's a good thing. Conviction, what it is at its core, is it just means I'm convinced that there's something I have to do. There's, yeah. there's something that I need to do. When, when, when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter number 2, and he's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and, and, and these people that have stumbled up to the upper room and heard these people speaking in tongues as the Holy Spirit is poured out, as the church really begins, they, they come to Jesus and, and Peter's preaching about, about Jesus. And, and he says to them that this same Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. That is in verse number uh, 37 uh, or in 36. And in verse number 37, the people that listen to that, they felt conviction, Tony, just like you, you felt about the MP3. They heard of something that, that was based in truth, a true statement. And they said, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Where do we go from here? We feel this conviction in our hearts that, that God is moving in our spirit. And, and, and I hope that through the communication right now that, that God loves you. That God loves you enough that He has come to humanity, stepped from heaven, became a man, died the most painful death that you could die. So that way his blood can be poured out for you to be saved and washed because he loved you enough that when he looked down the channels of time, he saw you in the year 2019 and he loved you enough that he said, I will come down and I will be the sacrifice for their sins. And I hope when you hear that message that it does something in your heart. I hope that even if you have already been gone through a salvation experience that when you hear and when you really think about the eternal God of heaven came into temporary time in the form of a man in Jesus Christ and died on that cross for you. I hope it does something in your heart. I, I know with me personally, that one thing I'm not the most overly emotional person, but if there's one thing that I would pray to God that that when I really think about it, it brings me to a place of emotion, to a time of where I've got to sit back and really consider and think, is when you think about the cross itself, it should always do something to your heart. It should always do something to your spirit because that's the greatest message. Without the cross, there is no hope in the world. And Peter is preaching to people about Jesus and he lays the crucifixion to their charge and it convicted them because we're all guilty of the crucifixion. Because if we were perfect, if we didn't have sin in our lives, 
then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on that cross. It is my sin that put those nails in his hands and the spear in his side. And it's it's my fallen nature that put the crown of thorns on his head. And it's it's my imperfection and my humanity and my carnality, my lusts and, and my prides and, 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 and all the things that are wrong about me that, that put the whip in the back of Jesus. And when we think about that, that it's our sin that Jesus paid the price for with the crucifixion. It should do something in our hearts. And with those people on that day, when they, they felt that, that guilt, they felt that conviction, they were convinced that, that they had something to do with the death of Jesus Christ. They asked the apostles, brethren, what must I do to be, to be saved? What can I do to get rid of this guilt? What can I do to, to, to answer the call of this conviction? What can I do in order for my, my life to be made right before the eyes of God? And then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So to our listeners out there that you're wondering when you think about the cross of Jesus Christ, what must I do? When you've been when laying in bed at night and you've been wondering, God, is there more for me? Is there an experience that I can have with you that's beyond what I've currently experienced? When God, I feel in my heart that there's, there's a stronger connection that I can have with you and that there's, there's a wholeness that I can have with you. That, that the, where the sin in my life, I feel like I can't get closer to you. God, what must I do? It's that same message. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That repentance is that first step. It's that initial step to God of, God, I want to step into this new relationship with you. I want to draw closer to you, Lord. That is repentance. And then there's this other thing that we haven't really talked about very much that, that, that Tony, when you were reading those, those five points earlier, you, you, I can't remember. Maybe you can recall it right now. What did you say about baptism? While you're looking, let me, at, let me pull it. While up. you're looking it up to get to that exact point, that this this baptism, what baptism is, it's not just some outward expression of a faith that you have in God, but but the apostle preached that repentant that baptism is for the remission of sin. Baptism has a role in the forgiveness of our hearts. What, what, what was it, Tony, that, that was said? This is the first example of water eliminating sin. The water eliminating sin. Not in the sense that the water itself washes the sin away. The Bible talks about how it's not the putting away of the filthiness of the flesh, meaning it's not just some bath, but, but it's the filthiness of a spirit. The water doesn't wash it away, but it's the blood of Jesus Christ. The water is an outward symbol of the blood of Jesus. And and when you come to that water and you are baptized, as the Bible says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the power isn't in that H2O, that water. 
that power is in that name. Because when you call on the name of Jesus, the Bible talks about how God is as close as the mention of his name. When you call upon that name, that name of salvation, Jesus' name, you call on all of who he is, all of his power, all of his ability to save in that water. And as you go down in the name of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that blood of Jesus is applied there. And there's a connection that's made with you. There's this word in the Bible that that is called covenant. And that covenant, it's not just some contractual agreement between you and God. It's a form of a relationship that, that it far surpasses some contractual agreement. But when as in the Old Testament, that they they were circumcised in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in this new covenant, because that's what the word testament means, new covenant. In this new covenant, it's a covenant that's made without hands. It's not the putting away of, of the, the the flesh, but it's the, the the answer of a good conscience before God. It is baptism that we come into covenant with God. And like in the Old Testament, when God told uh, Abraham, he said that I will be your God if you will be my people. It is at baptism that we say to God, it is here that, that I make you my God. And here is where I become yours. I give myself fully to you. And when you do that, all of the sin that you lifted your hands in repentance up to God, at baptism it is all washed away and you are cleansed. And any time after that, you're not going to be perfect. Tony has talked about it on this podcast itself, that, that, that you make mistakes after. There are sins you still struggle with. It's, it's just the part of life. But the thing is, is that once you've gone through that water of baptism, every time you repent after that, every time you ask for forgiveness after that, that blood is reapplied because you've entered into covenant with God. And that covenant that says, God, if you will be my Savior, I will be yours. And every time you pray, God, will you forgive me of what I've been thinking? God, will you forgive me of how I've wronged people? Will you forgive me of the way I've mistreated my brother or the the way that I've thought wrongly about you or the way that I've acted in, in a way that, that is detrimental to the Christian faith or or whenever I've I've sent a text message to a person that I wasn't supposed to text or, or I went and I was waiting in a hotel room and I know I've messed up and nobody can know about the secret things that are in my life and, and the things that I'm keeping in a closed door and behind in, in this back closet somewhere that I don't want any of my friends to know about any of my family to know about if anybody knows then then my whole world would fall apart. But if I can just gain a little bit of peace in saying, God, will you forgive me again as I turn back into you because you've gone to that water that no matter where you found yourself since then, that blood is immediately reapplied because you have entered into that relationship covenant with God that every time you ask him, God, will you forgive me? He does it every single time time. Is that not one of the most beautiful messages that can be out there? Is that even when you've done wrong, Christ came and he loved you when you were still a sinner. And even though you still live in carnal flesh and you still struggle with the sin nature, that when you turn to Jesus, it can all be washed away in in just a moment's time because you've entered into this relationship with God where you say, Jesus, you are my savior and I am yours. And if you will forgive me again, I'll continue to walk after you. And there is this final point that we'll get to and, and then we will, we will close is, 
is then there's another promise in Acts 2, verse number 38, and that is, and ye shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. That gift of the Holy Ghost, what the Holy Spirit is, Holy Spirit and Holy Ghost are the exact same things uh, when you study the, the meanings of the New Testament. What it is, is it is literally the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. Jesus is teaching his apostles in John chapter number 14, and he talks about how he's going to send a comforter to them and how that comforter is the Holy Ghost. And one statement Jesus makes in John chapter number 14 that seems to be confusing is he's talking about how this comforter is going to come and, he's, and, and this Holy Spirit is going to come into you. But one thing that he says in all of that that seems to be confusing because he's making these distinctions between the Father, himself, and the role of the Holy Spirit. He's not making a difference between their personhood because there are no personhoods within that. For Jesus is the manifestation of the Father. In John 14, he already told them when Philip asked, Jesus, if you would just show us the Father, it would be sufficient to me. And Jesus turns to him and says, Philip, have I been with you for so long? And yet, you don't know me? For if you have seen me, you have seen the Father also. And so Jesus has already been teaching them that he and the Father are one and the same. That is the Testament. Even in Isaiah, before Jesus was even born, Isaiah said, Unto us a son is born, unto us, or a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called the Mighty God. And one of the things that he'll be called is the Everlasting Father. The son born would be the Father. And so Jesus is here. He is the manifestation of flesh of the Father, which means he is the Father fully revealed in humanity. And he's speaking to his apostles, and he seems to be speaking about this Holy Spirit and it's kind of confusing when you study through about what is the Holy Spirit. Is, it, it, is there a separation there? What is he talking about? And he talks about how the Holy Spirit's going to come into you. And what Jesus says that is interesting is that I will not leave you comfortless, but I will come into you. Well, Jesus, you're talking about the Holy Spirit, but now he suddenly says, that I, so what is the revelation there? Is that the exact spirit of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. It is the spirit of Jesus that can come into your life. It's not, Jesus is not just some figure that you believe that is in, that is up in heaven, but he has come into you through the infilling of the Holy Spirit, that he can come and live within your heart, within your spirit, you want to know that one thing that's very interesting in that, Tony, is I'm sure you, you've, you've studied it in, 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 in your Bible studies, is that there's this passage that talks about how I will not leave you comfortless that Jesus says, but in the Greek language, what the word for comfortless means is orphanos, which means I will not leave you as an orphan. But it is through the infilling of the Holy Spirit that we are adopted into the family of God. We were orphaned because of sin. We were, we were led astray. We were slaves to our sins. We were apart from God. But when we've come to Him in repentance, and we've come to Him at baptism and said, Jesus, will you be my Savior? And I will follow after you. I will give my life unto you. 
when we do all that, there's another promise that's available to us, and it's the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And it is here that we are adopted into the family of God. When the Holy Spirit comes in, in Acts chapter number 2, they spoke with tongues. And in Acts chapter number 10, the Gentiles, when they first came into the church, they spake with tongues also. In Acts 19, when these conversion experiences, they speak in tongues. What is speaking in tongues? Apostle Paul talks about how it is the Spirit of God praying through you because you don't always know what you should pray. And it says in the Scriptures that it is the Holy Spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. It is the infilling of the Holy Spirit that adopts us into the family of God, and it makes us a child of the King. So here in conclusion, Tony, I want to ask you to to talk to us about what it's like to be infilled with the Holy Spirit, what it's like when you've gone through all these things and you look back over your life of walking with God. And I, I want you here in this conclusion to really make it plain to our, our, our listeners out there that this is something they can have that's going to take their walk with God to another level. Well, as we said before, that it's it's not something you have to beg for. It's not something you have to work for. It's not something you have to fleece God for. It's something that God's given to you, and it's our responsibility to take it. It is something that is not only essential to make it to heaven, but it is something that gives you comfort, something that gives you peace, something that gives you understanding, something that gives you knowledge, something that gives you uh, a, a desire to want to dig deeper into studying God's Word and having a better relationship with Him. And I, I, I urge our listeners to not—you don't even have to come to a, to a certain specific church, even though that that'd be great. But we want you to sit back and reflect. Is there something more— that I could be doing? Is there something better I could be doing? Does people know that I have a relationship with God? Can they see that? Does my attitude say something different? Does my action show something different? Brian and I, we don't do these because we don't have anything better to do on a Monday. We do them because it's something that's on our heart. It's something that we... Um, are dealing with um, something that I struggled with last week whenever I saw um, a, a conversation between two people saying that the Holy Ghost experience is fake. I want you as a listener to take time. And as a, at the conclusion of this podcast, I would like to pray over our audience um, that God would reveal his life, and his plan for you and make it very evident in your life. Jesus, we love you tonight. We thank you for this clear understanding and this word that Brian brought forth to us tonight. We not only repent, Lord, but I want you to find favor in my life through that repentance. And I would ask for you to come be very evident in my life and speak wisdom and direction into my life and help me gain a better understanding for you and to live for you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tony, is it real? It's the realest thing I know, Brian. It's real. I mean, if people have these different experiences, you know, they anybody can say anything. What we hope that, that has been brought forth is that there is a true biblical experience. I hope that through the passion that, I hope you've felt our passion for this subject to know that it wasn't just some casual experience. I, I mean, I remember with me that I tried to walk away from God. I tried to run from God after my initial conversion. Uh, and I remember the night that I was refilled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because there were times, Tony, that I questioned whether or not I really even received the Holy Ghost as a young person. Same here. I said, was it real? Did did Because there, there's an emphasis that's sometimes placed in Pentecostal churches on speaking in tongues. Tongues is not the Holy Ghost. It's just a sign of the Holy Ghost. It's an initial sign. The ultimate it's the evidence. Well, the ultimate evidence is the the fruit of the Spirit. Yes. But that's where you first see it is is because that's what the Book of Acts kind of shows us. So my question was, did I really do it? Was it was it real, or or did I did I somehow imagine that, or or just I forced myself into a thinking because. There was a point in this video, and the thing is, is I haven't watched the whole thing, so in reality, I can't speak with any sort of authority as to all the merits of what was discussed in that. I only saw a small snippet myself. And sometimes I think we wrestle with was it real and things like that. And here's in this conclusion, as Tony's already prayed and as we sign off now, I just want to be honest and say there were times that I wondered, was that real or did I imagine it? And you as a listener, you've been listening to this podcast long enough to know that there've been times I've wondered about my personal calling and walk with God and said, did I just imagine that? But you know, whenever I prayed back through in 2010 and I received the gift of the Holy Ghost again, I was laying flat on my back as the power of God hit me at the altar in Redfield. And I began to notice that these language was coming out of my mouth. And in my mind, as an independent thought, separate from what my tongue was doing, there was a thought going through my mind. And the thought was, I'm doing it. This this is real. This is real. And, and you know, obviously, in the way that we communicate, is you can't be thinking something separate than what you're saying. But there was, it was something unique in that, is that it wasn't just some vain babbling. You could tell in the way I could, because I, I could hear myself. You could hear a breakdown of, of syllables and words, and, and I was so in awe that this experience really was real. Because for years, I had wondered, whenever I was a young person, was it real? 